Okay, welcome in everybody to another episode of Mythic Existence. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing the alchemical tradition in Harry Potter. A specific focus will be placed on an alchemical and Rosicrucian text from 1616 called The Alchemical Wedding of Christian Rosicross. I hope to show that the inner meanings of Harry Potter arise from this esoteric text, and that in this reading, Harry Potter becomes an alchemical text and a guidebook for transmuting the soul. So alchemy is a topic that I've had a lot of interest in for years. I wrote my master's thesis about Carl Jung and his studies into alchemy. And Carl Jung's book, Psychology and Alchemy, was kind of a a stepping stone in my education about alchemy and has been a, a big part of my understanding of what it is. So to, on today's episode, we're going to get into basically... Um, the alchemical tradition behind Harry Potter. And what I mean by that is that there's there's a whole allegory that is running through Harry Potter that is about spiritual alchemy. And this is going to be kind of a hard topic to approach because to truly understand and appreciate the esoteric nature of alchemy, it's going to take some, you know, it's going to take some really arcane and esoteric uh, teachings to come forth. And I'm going to do my best to do that. Alchemy is a very difficult subject to kind of, uh, you know, get across to somebody. I mean, I've been studying it for years and there's still a lot of aspects of it that I don't quite understand. But the basic thing that I want to just say right off the bat is that um, basically it appears that J.K. Rowling used this text, The Alchemical Wedding of Christian Rosie Cross, as one of the main source texts for Harry Potter. And I'm going to go over the entire plot of that story. It's not super long, but uh, basically this, this text is extremely esoteric and has a lot of um, hidden meanings behind it in the first place. And J.K. Rowling, it seems, uh, used this as a, a way of conceiving of a lot of the characters and a lot of the plot points, and most importantly, the, the inner meaning of the story. And how I first came across this, uh, you know, correspondence between Harry Potter and the alchemical uh, wedding of Christian Rosycrosses, uh, several years ago, I was... I was researching alchemy on the internet, and I I I remember plugging in three-headed dog alchemy, and I had been listening to a uh, a lecture by Terence McKenna, who's one of my favorite, uh, you know, one of my favorite just philosophers, one of my favorite people, and he's he's lectured on alchemy. He's got a fascinating lecture that it, it's usually on. I think if you looked up. Um, like alchemy and the hermetic tradition. He's got like a four hour lecture on on the internet. It's amazing. But he talks about 
I think it's in this one. It might be in another one of his uh, his lectures about alchemy. But he talks about the three-headed dog and alchemy. And I was just curious to what it meant and what it represented. So I looked it up. And this page called Harry Potter for Seekers came up. Because, you know, Cerberus is a character in Harry Potter. And that's the three-headed dog from classical mythology. And there's a lot of alchemy in Harry Potter. And so this page... And this is where I've gotten a lot of my information. It's, it's harrypotterforseekers.com. Uh, basically, what they posited is that uh, what I'm saying is that uh, J.K. Rowling must have read this book, The Alchemical Wedding of Christian Rosie Cross, and used it as one of her main source texts. And not only they say that she used just that story, but that she must have used this esoteric um, translation by... Uh, a man named Jan van Rekenborg, uh from the 90s, from the early 90s. I think it was 1991 is when it was a two-part, um, two books that he published uh, where he went through and actually tried to explain what the esoteric meaning of all of these occurrences in the book mean. And so, I mean, the Harry Potter for Seekers.com I mean, you know, it's just an internet website, right? So, like, everything that they could say is could definitely be flawed. But I went through and I actually purchased those books. I read them. And, I mean, they were illuminating, like, extremely illuminating, so interesting. And I found what, what this website said to be true after my own research on it. And... um yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's 700 pages or so in total. I, I recommend reading it. I, it was hard to find a reasonably priced version of this text on the Internet. I mean, it's a rare book. It's not something that you're going to find at Barnes & Noble. But anyway, I, let's get into the discussion proper. But first off, we need, to, we need to go over a little bit of an overview of alchemy. And so... I think a lot of people, you know, they think that alchemy is this pseudoscience that was proven to be wrong, and it's only trying to turn mundane lead into mundane gold. And while that aspect, that chemical aspect of alchemy was definitely a real thing, what's more important, I think, and definitely what Carl Jung would say, um, is the, the, the spiritual, the psychological level of alchemy which is something that is is an aspect of this art. And so from the psychological and the spiritual level, alchemy is not just turning lead into gold. It's turning the lead of the mundane self into the gold of a fully realized individual. And one thing that needs to be understood about alchemy is that these alchemists were not operating on the same mind-body dualism as is the you know, the, the norm in Western society, the, the, the res extensa and the res cogitans of Descartes were not something that figured into their world. There wasn't the mind is one thing and the, the body and the external world were something else. The mind and the body were, were one for the alchemists. And so what they were doing is they were, they're projecting their image into nature and they're seeing themselves play out in what we would see as the external world, which to them was the, this this line between external and internal was blurred, and it wasn't as um, 
you know, it wasn't as delineated as it, we think it is. At least society as a whole, I don't think it is. But so what the alchemists were seeing happen in their their laboratory experiments, they thought was also occurring within themselves. So they thought that, you know, you could transmute this normal human being into something divine. And so that's what the goal of the alchemist was, was to achieve the philosopher's stone to be to become a living philosopher's stone and have transmuted themselves to a higher plane of existence and this this is what was called the coincidencia oppositorium oppositorum of the alchemist was uh, the coincidence of opposites the breaking down of these binaries you can think of the yin and yang symbol of of how that that works, and um, especially McKenna actually talks about in his lectures on alchemy about the the middle line running through the yin and yang is actually where the alchemists operated. They operated in that m- muddy, blurred realm of the dream world of the unconscious, and that's what really made Jung so interested in in alchemy in the first place was uh the the unconscious level of it and he he basically said that the alchemists were tapping into the collective unconscious and that they were using these symbols as ways to um express what was actually occurring um within the alchemists in their in their minds and you know in their bodies as well so in this way jung saw alchemy as a path toward individuation of becoming you know the 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 enlightened individual that everybody is you know striving to be so that's basically what alchemy is from a spiritual perspective is that it's it's a way to to transcend duality to transcend opposites to become a a divine individual so I'm sure that that was a lot to swallow, and it by no means is an explanation of the whole of alchemy, but at least this gives us a jumping off point to talk about the the alchemy that's in Harry Potter and perhaps what is meaning. So, you know, it, it, when you think about Harry Potter, the first book is the, philosoph- the, the Philosopher's Stone, right? The Sorcerer's Stone, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And one of the main characters in that book is Nicholas Flamel. And Nicholas Flamel is, was actually a real alchemist, a real historical person from the 14th century that was said to have made the Philosopher's Stone. So right off the bat from this first book, we're, we're getting these keys. It centers completely around the Philosopher's Stone, which is the goal of alchemy. Uh, in alchemy, the, the, you're, they're trying to turn the prima materia, the first matter, into the Philosopher's Stone. And the... the the alchemists are, uh, you know, perplexingly ev- evasive when describing what the prima materia actually is. But this material goes through several different phases, a blackening phase, a white phase, and a red phase, when ultimately this philosopher's stone is created that is allowed to turn anything into gold and is able to uh, produce what's called the elixir of life, which promises immortality. So if you think about uh, Nicholas Flamel in 
Harry Potter, it seems that he did end up creating the Philosopher's Stone and also creating the elixir of immortality. Gold doesn't really fit into it, but uh, just right from off the bat, we have this alchemical tradition being thrown in our faces. Um, also, John Dee is a character that uh, is actually encrypted in both the text of the alchemical wedding and of Harry Potter. You can think of when Hagrid goes to Dijon in France in book five, uh, Harry Potter for Seekers, they say that that's a reference to John Dee. And John Dee was the uh, the alchemist par excellence of Elizabethan England. He was um, an archmage who had this amazing library and was Elizabeth I's right-hand man when it came to astrology and alchemy. And so that's... That's another interesting coincidence between these two books. And I'm going to go through this long, long list of correspondences that once you see all of the similarities between the two, you can only really take away that that one was drawn from the other. So in alchemy, everybody has the eternal spark of God within themselves. And it's with this spark that you create the philosopher's stone. In Harry Potter, the divine spark is symbolized by Lily. And to open the Lily, you have to long for the universe of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's called the Tao. Other places it's called the Nirvana. And this longing for God in alchemy is symbolized by the stag, which you remember is James's Patronus. So when Lily marries James, it shows that the seeker of the philosopher's stone has taken the first step. And when this happens, the lily bud opened up, opens up and it gives birth to the new soul, who is Harry. So Harry in Harry Potter is the f- living philosopher's stone. And this new soul spreads throughout the endocrine system of the individual like a fire. And that inner fire is the, the, the tantric source of Eastern yoga. It's the kundalini energy rising through the chakras going from the base chakra up into the third eye and coming through into the crown chakra. And so that's another thing that both Jung and Jan von Rickenborg make clear is that alchemy is a sort of Western Western yoga aimed at bringing forth this serpent fire that is symbolized in Harry Potter by Nagini, the, the snake, who is also a horcrux of Voldemort. And so, ultimately, the goal of this alchemy is to become a philosopher's stone themselves. And at that time, they achieve union with God and a liberation from death, time, suffering, and evil. So, alchemists are undergoing a constant process of transfiguration. So, that's kind of how it figures into Harry Potter and alchemy. Just a basic idea. But... Before I go through and actually tell you about all of the correspondences that exist between Harry Potter and the alchemical wedding, we have to go through a summary of the alchemical wedding itself. And I'm just going to give you a basic idea of what actually happens in the story and what uh, Jan van Rickenborg says these events actually mean. Because 
I mean, if you just read through the alchemical wedding, you would just be like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, this doesn't make any sense. So, the alchemical wedding takes part in seven days. There's seven different days, and this is why there are seven different Harry Potter books. And seven is this very important number in both Harry Potter and in the alchemical wedding. And it starts off with Christian Rosenkreutz, also known Christian Rosie Cross, who was praying, and during his prayer, he was disturbed by a violent storm the day before Easter. And, I mean, you can remember when Hagrid comes to meet Harry, it's during this violent storm. And it happens on the day before Easter because alchemy has to be began on in the sign of Aries. So, the day before Easter... Uh, in this text is is in the the sign of Aries. So an angel arrives and gives him a letter inviting him to a royal wedding. So obviously, you know, Harry receives a letter and this royal re- the royal wedding is equivalent of the trip to Hogwarts. And this invitation was a fulfillment of a prophecy from 7 years ago. And Christian Rosie Cross knows that he's supposed to do this and he's prepared. He goes out and he prepares himself for this hermetic marriage. And as he does, he leaves the house feeling like the whole universe was conspiring for him. And like I said, it's Easter because Easter is a feast of resurrection as well. So this is a, rec- a resurrection from the old man into the new man, the, the old person into this new person. Um, Easter is also a, a festival of a, a resurrection of nature itself. And every human being is always preparing for this resurrection feast. So the storm that occurs is also very important. Von Rickenburg calls it an astral storm in which your body is basically being uh, elevated into this new experience. And this invitation is an invitation to seek the temple of mysteries. Van Rickenborg also says that this the letter leaves a trace or a scar, which is very interesting because he specifically says scar, and apparently the, the letter actually left a scar on Christian Rosie Cross's hand. So the scar is there also. And by the end of this first day, the initiate knows that they're willing to participate in the alchemical wedding. And Something, one of the reasons that this story resonates with me is that I've felt like I've gone through this exact same thing. And so once you're really being called to be initiated into the hermetic mysteries, you know, you feel bewildered. And, but you've, you know that this is something that goes beyond the mundane. And you can feel yourself changing and experiencing something totally new. So that's the first day of the alchemical wedding. On day two... Christian Rosie Cross embarks and he comes across a cedar inscribed with four paths that lead to the castle of the king. So these four paths is where the four schools, the four houses come into play in Harry Potter. And it's the castle of the king. That's Hogwarts. While he's on this path, a dove takes his bread and he gets attacked by a raven. The dove does. And this uh, Christian Rosycross, he chases after the dove and the raven, and he he goes down one of the paths. So that's the path that he's taking. 
And then eventually he comes within the the gates of the castle and he comes across the gatekeeper. So this is Hagrid. There's the, the gatekeeper. And he's barely able to make it in before the gates close. He gets inside and he's seated at a large dining table with floating candles. And so that's obviously straight out of Harry Potter. You know, there's this dining table, there's floating candles, it's the dining hall. And he's welcomed by this character called Virgo Lucifera, the light-bearing virgin, who is basically Professor McGonagall in this story. And she says that the next day, everybody will be weighed on a set of scales to see if they're worthy or not. And this is kind of like the sorting hat basically going on. And Christian Rosycross worries that he doesn't think that he'll be worthy. But overnight, he has a good dream. So some of the the esoteric meanings of this, this day, according to von Rickenborg, is... Uh, dialectical esotericists say that there are two ways to this mystical path, which is either the head or the heart. But the story actually says that there are four paths. The esoteric path, the path of evolution, the path of Gnostic magic, and the astral path. And it's this third pathway, the path of Gnostic magic, that um, Christian Rosie Cross ends up going down. And so... Uh, one thing is that this is a Rosicrucian text, and Rosicrucianism is kind of a mix of um, her alchemical hermeticism, of Jewish Kabbalism, Kabbalism, and Christian Gnosticism. So that's one of the claims that the the, al- the alchemists and the Rosicrucians are making here. And he says that the White Dove is the new soul state that you're being born into, and that the alchemists will always protect this White Dove. And, I mean, Christian Rosycross, he has his doubts, but, you know, sometimes this path is tough and you're not sure if you're on the right path. And, you know, anybody who's tried to make the visit to the inner sanctuary knows this feeling, but inevitably uh, you're on the right path. And he also says that the pathway is that the, the serpent fire system. So the path is... Uh, you know, the chakras, and this is all like th- this is reminiscent of the, the alchemists not having the mind body dualism. The story is something that occurs interior and like inside of a person. So that's day two. On day three, the weighing actually happens, and within the all the people that are actually at this, this dining hall and at the castle, a lot of them are. Br- what they're called the the bragging kings, the braggart kings. There's these self-satisfied people, and uh, this is where the character of Gilderoy Lockhart is derived from. And CRC actually ends up passes passing the wings, and uh, basically what happens here is that the on these golden scales there are placed seven weights, and if you are if you're heavier than the seven weights. And these are like metaphysical weights. It's very, they're magical in some way. Then you're proclaimed to pass. And one put, one person actually proclaims that this is he when Christian Rosie Cross comes up. So he's the chosen one like Harry Potter, right? Um, and those who don't pass are given a, a, a draft of forgetfulness. They're giving this, 
they're given this, uh, you know, magic potion that makes them forget, which is very much like what happens in Harry Potter. It's not a potion, but it's a spell that they cast that makes people forget, right? And then a page guides them throughout the castle and uh, shows them this magnificent library that is kind of like the the forbidden library in Harry Potter. And they're led to their bedchambers alongside all these beautiful paintings. And this is super reminiscent of like, you know, the, the kids being led to their bedchambers by the, the head boy and the head girl, right? Um, at the end, uh, at, well, just after they're sorted into their respective houses, right? So kind of what's going on here, this, this weighing is very similar to the, the scales of Mott from Egyptian mythology. And the way that the, the weights are added up in the text, it comes out to a number of 28, which is the symbol of gold. So it shows that this is an impulse to rebirth. And Van Rickenberg also talks about this, these lessons that are given within the, this day. And he says that the, the, the main lessons are that everything is God that universal love is the highest law and that all you can know is that you know nothing. So those are kind of the biggest takeaways from day three. Day four is, uh, so Christian Rosycross actually goes to the wedding on this day and he sees an ancient king with a young consort, a black king with a veiled matron and two young persons over whose heads hung a large crown. And before the queen was a little black book. This is very similar to the Horcrux where Voldemort has, uh, you know, placed part of himself that ends up getting stabbed with the, uh, the tooth of the basilisk, right? And there's also mentions of chambers all throughout this book. So Chambers of Secret is in there. There's a candle, a watch, a pipe, and a serpent crawling around a skull. So this is where the Death Eater symbol comes from. And he also sees moving statues, which is very reminiscent of Wizard's Chess. And then they go to see a play in seven acts. I don't need to get into what the seven acts of the play are, but um, basically after after that, Christian Rosycross sees that the king is sad and he wonders why, but so all six of the royal persons are beheaded by an executioner. So they, they are all killed. And Christian Rosycross sees these seven ships on a lake outside later in the day, which is super similar to, you know, uh, the Goblet of Fire when, uh, you know, the, the ships are coming on the Great Lake. <laughs> so Van Rickenborg says that this wedding hall takes place in the pineal gland. And he's always having to go up these spiraling staircases to get there. And uh, the pineal gland is the third eye. It's the the third eye chakra. And it's this part of the brain where creativity and mystical wisdom are really born from. And that's kind of one of the goals of both Eastern yoga and of, of alchemy is coming into a knowledge of this, this third eye wisdom, basically. Um, during this day, he actually sees what's called the Holy Ancient One, who's described as an old man with this long beard. It's definitely a description of Dumbledore. 
and um, the skull itself is a symbol of eternal life. And he explains the death that occurs. He says that it's called the Endura. And it's this thing that we've hit on multiple different times during my podcast, but it's this philosophical death that you have to actually experience. It's dying before you die. It's uh, being, you know, it's dying into the realm of spirit, essentially. And there are seven ships that he sees. And these, Von Rickenborg says, are the seven rays of the seven spirit. And so, um, in alchemy, there's these seven different processes that are, you know, beautifully depicted in, in what's called the Azoth of the Philosophers by Basil Valentine in, in a similar time. I think it was from 1619. But uh, this is the seven-rayed god of alchemy. Um, that is both the alchemist and, you know, the divine God itself. So that's day four. Day five, uh, basically on this day, Christian Rosy Cross is taken to a royal treasury where he sees the, the sepulcher of the lady Venus. So he sees the, the naked goddess, sort of like he's, uh, you know, uh, a, a mythological figure seeing, um, you know, the goddess in her, her barest form, right? And then the Virgo Lucifera takes the guest to this courtyard where six coffins are buried. And then she takes them, she wants all of the people brought back to life. So they go to this tower of Olympus where this medicine is. And along that time, they come across sirens, nymphs, and sea goddesses. And he also sees these seven flames go to the top of the central tower. So Van Rickenborg says that um, whoever wants to find liberation will find the royal treasure and see it with their own eyes. That's what's happening here. Um, And the medicine that they're searching is the alkahest. It's this, it's the ultimate um, medicine of alchemy. And he says that he sees the nymphs because they're, he says that all parts of existence interpenetrate into one another. So even these magical beings are always there no matter what. So on day six, um, basically they cast lots and some of the figures that are still around get wings and some get ladders. And Christian Rosycross gets a ladder, and he has to try and make it up to the seventh floor of this tower. So we can see, you know, this is still this this chakra symbolism going on. And uh, they see this white egg out of which a bird is hatched. And this bird turns out to be a phoenix that burns to ashes. And then uh, from out of the white egg, these homunculi are produced that turn out to be the king and the queen. And the egg actually comes out of a golden globe, which is the snitch, uh, also represented as the pineal gland. So this is basically uh, the main end of the story. Like, there's a seventh day, but ultimately this story is a prototype for self-realization. And I hope uh, I hope this hasn't been too dry of a discussion just of, of the story itself, but... I would say go out and and read the books because they're super, super interesting. Um, And then what happens on the seventh day, everybody else is named, everybody is named Knights of the Golden Stone. 
and they have to swear to these five articles to be inside of this this knighthood it's that they they have to only you know be servants of god and god's handmaid which is nature they have to abominate uncleanliness and vice they have to assist the worthy and needy they have to use their knowledge not for attainment of worldly dignity and they have to not live longer than god decrees the king is mad that somebody has seen Venus and see Christian Rosycross says that it was him. And, and the story basically ends with him. The implication being that he has to be the new gatekeeper. It actually ends mid sentence. The seventh day does. So, um, that's, that's basically what the, the story is. So, um, let's get into some of the, the lists of correspondences that exists between these two stories. So Harry Potter, like I said, he's the new immortal soul. Hermione Granger is the new mind of the alchemist. Ron Weasley is the earthly biological personality. So this is Ron Weasley is like the old person. Albus Dumbledore is the radiation from God, the Gnosis, the divine spirit. Hagrid is the gatekeeper, the bodhisattva that brings the seekers to the path. Uh, Voldemort is the immortal but sinful higher self of the human microcosm. So uh, Voldemort is an inherent part of this mundane uh, you know, domain. Sirius Black is the living plan of God. The Weasley family are the seven chakras. Um, Severus Snape is the Black King. Remus Lupin is the Grey King. Draco Malfoy is the serpent fire in the spinal cord. Um, Let's see. Lucius Malfoy is the brain and its feeling of superiority. It's kind of the ego uh, personified. Dobby is the liberated etheric body. Um, and then the snitch is this new divine consciousness. So uh, that's that's just kind of a table of correspondences between the, these two stories. And I mean, basically what we can see playing out here is that uh, the symbolism, it points to an alchemical journey that takes the human to a, a, an absolute reunion with the divine spirit. Um, and that's what really the importance of alchemy is, is, is coming into one's own divinity. Um, and then the seven Horcruxes that are actually in the story. So Snape also figures in interestingly into, uh, this whole, this whole correspondence also. He, he represents the drive in us to achieve this liberation through dark magic. And if you think in Harry Potter, Harry can't do things through dark magic. He can't, he can't learn occlumency. He can't learn legilimens. He has to do it on intuition. And for Harry, the room of requirement satisfies every need. And that's how it is for the alchemists. Once they've gone through this, uh, this journey, like Christian Rosie cross, the whole of nature is conspiring with every step. Another interesting thing is that in Harry Potter or in uh, alchemy, there's three phases called the Negredo, Albedo, and Rubedo. This is the blackening phase, the whitening phase, and the Rubedo phase. And uh, the book claims that those three uh, 
aspects play out over the the order of the phoenix the half-blood prince and the deathly hollows so the order of the phoenix is the negredo phase and during this phase the alchemist has to lose everything and i mean in order of phoenix harry potter loses his godfather he loses his broom uh, his he sees you know his father being a bad person he loses Cho and he loses his self-esteem so this is the black phase of alchemy and the half-blood appearance is the white stage and during the white stage you have to purify yourself totally and during the half-blood prince harry potter his motives intensify he starts working with dumbledore on the quest right so he's He's purifying himself. He's freeing himself of earthly desires. Um, And then also there's the Rubedo phase, which is the reddening phase in which the the Philosopher's Stone is actually attained. And this is the Deathly Hollows. During this point, you have to be totally purified without any attachments to earthly life. And that's how you can be ready to make the Philosopher's Stone. Um, And during this book, you know, Harry Potter, he finally, you know, he finally succeeds in his, what he was trying to do. And so at this point, he's ready to make the gold and the elixir of life. And I think that this actually can be really symbolized by when he snaps his wand in half, right? He's, he's, he doesn't have this attachments to the, the things anymore. And then also what's really interesting is that there is a key left in the name of all seven books and they correspond to these elements that are listed out in just in alchemy in general, but also play through the alchemical wedding. And so each of them have a correspondence with, with an element. So in the first book, we have the philosopher's stone that corresponds to the element of earth. The second book is the chamber, which is the chamber of secrets. This is air because a chamber is a container of air. On the the third the third book is the prisoner of Azkaban, which is water because it's surrounded by water. The goblet of fire is obviously fire. Fifth is quintessence. the The order of the phoenix is quintessence. And the reason is that this element contains the previous four elements and the phoenix is a tradition, traditional symbol for this element. The sixth book is that of soul, which is uh, the half-blood prince. It said that your soul is in your blood. And then the seventh is the deathly hallows, which also means holy and that's spirit. Another thing that is listed in the alchemical wedding is these seven different planes of existence that also correspond to what happens in the book. So the first plane of existence is the physical plane. And this is in the philosopher's stone. Harry gets the stone because he doesn't want it. He's detached from physical wealth and life. That's how he gets the stone. The second plane is the etheric plane. And this is the chamber of secrets. During this book, Harry frees Dobby, which symbolizes the freedom of the etheric body. Third book is the astral plane. And at this time, Harry learns about the Patronus, which enables him to drive off the Dementors, which are astral creatures themselves. In the fourth book, 
The fourth book is about the mental plane, and uh, this is symbolized by uh, Harry's wand, which symbolizes his willpower overcoming Voldemort's wand. And then in the fifth book, there's we have the the first level of the mental uh, ego, and at this point, Harry's love for Sirius liberates Harry's mind from possession by Voldemort. So he's he's freed this first level of his mental ego, and then in the Half Blood Prince, the emotional eye is freed. And this is when the locket that is sim- that is a symbol of the emotional eye is missing from the cave, which is a symbol of the heart. And finally, finally, the consciousness eye is what the, is it is called in the alchemical wedding uh, is symbolized in the Deathly Hollows, and this is when Voldemort kills the Horcrux behind Harry's scar, and. Well, the the Horcrux behind Harry's scar is killed, and the consciousness eye is liberated. Um, I mean, go read. Most of this is in this Harry Potter for Seekers page. I found it to be really illuminating. Try and find a text of Van Rickenborg's, uh, you know, translation and his his study of the Alchemical Wedding. Just read the Alchemical Wedding online if you want to. But that's it for today's episode. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I made a page for Mythic Existence on both of them. I'm sure you can find it. And I'm gonna go, I'm gonna leave you with this final quote from HarryPotterSeekers.com, Harry Potter for Seekers.com, that summarizes the inner meaning of Harry Potter. Our job as earthly human beings is to devote our lives to Lily, and as a hunted stag thirst for fresh flowing streams yearn for God to be born in us. Then Harry, son of the potter of the universe, will be born in our heart, and we can leave the job of liberation to him. All we have to do then is to follow Harry, like Ron, and just be loyal and supportive. In other words, we must make the new soul our master, our guide, our closest friend. We must surrender our whole being to him. He will then grow in strength and grace and liberate our whole being, step by step. He will have Sirius to guide him. Sirius symbolizes the divine light of wisdom, the divine plan of liberation which has been in our microcosm since it was created by God. Our our mortal personality will be like a blueprint for the heavenly multidimensional man. Thanks for listening. See you next time.